Well, I love the idea of being able to start this weekend of ministry uh, here with you guys in this place, Um, really for two main reasons. Number one, the strength or weakness of this church is found right here in this room. You guys are aware of that? Strength or weakness is found right here in this place, and this church now and in the future is shaped and will be shaped by you guys and uh, your influence and impact. So that's the first reason. But the second is because I know that uh, more than anything else, I'm a product of the tremendous influence of godly men in my life. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about that with you here this morning by way of telling you some of my story. We're going to look at a couple of uh, scripture passages that I think fit in with what God's doing in my life and and has done in my life, and I think will also be a challenge and encouragement to you in your role as men in your uh, families uh, and uh, and in this church. So so I'm thankful for some men in my life. I'm very confident that my life and the blessings of my life are a direct byproduct of the impact of godly men. My uh, grandfather, in fact, I'm going to have you turn to uh, Psalm 1. We're going to look at Psalm 1 for a little bit, and then we're going to jump back a few passages in Psalm 15. And we'll use these two texts to maybe explain a little bit of my story and help you to see where I'm coming from and some of my burdens for you, uh, in particular for men in particular. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Um, My story, similar to yours, um, is influenced by men in my life. And ladies, of course, this is Mother's Day, and so for sure my mom and, and many other godly women influenced my life greatly, but there's no question that my story has been greatly influenced by men, and and I'm thankful in my situation I've been influenced by godly men. My grandfather, my dad's side, um, became a believer in his 30s. Um, Prior to that, and of course I didn't know any of this, but my dad talks about his family uh, and his father in particular uh, prior to his point of conversion and salvation as being a good man. Uh, well-respected by people in the, in the community, uh, loving father, loving husband, uh, but certainly not a believer. He didn't come from a family of believers. And um, my dad describes my grandpa during those years uh, as, as having a tendency to drink, and when he drank, uh, he, he said he, he, was a, uh, he was a happy drunk. My dad was a, uh, he'd say, my dad was a happy drunk. My uncle's were mean drunks, <laughs> um, but my, my dad, so my grandpa, was a happy drunk. My, uh, his uncle Ace uh, owned a local tavern in this little town in, in uh, Minnesota, 
And uh, Uncle Ace owned the tavern. Uncle Al was sort of the mean drunk. In fact, my dad said as he was growing up, uh, his Uncle Al would come by the house late at night after he'd been drinking, and he'd bang on the door, and he'd yell. My, my grandpa's name was Merton, um, but everybody called him Mutt. And uh, so he'd bang on the door and say, Hey, Mutt, come out here and fight me. And uh, so he'd, he'd be yelling out there, and, and Grandpa, who wasn't drunk, would stay inside. And, and then after uh, my Grandpa became a believer, uh, Uncle Al would still come by when he got drunk. He'd bang on the door, but instead of come out and fight me, he'd say, Hey, Mutt, come out and save me. That's what he'd always say. Why don't you come out and save me? Um, so that's sort of the, the background, the family that uh, my dad uh, grew up in. Hardworking, um, good people. Uh, but certainly not believers and not following Christ in any way. In his early 30s, and I won't tell you this whole story, but in his early 30s, my grandpa and my grandma uh, miraculously came to faith in Jesus Christ, and their life changed, I mean, dramatically. Uh, my dad t- talks stories about, um, he, he remembers this picture. In fact, I've heard this story so much that it's like vivid in my mind, but uh, he says he remembers this story after um, my, my grandpa became a believer um, you know, there's still, you know, quite a bit of alcohol around in their house, and Grandma would, would say to him, come on, Mutt, when are you, you going to get rid of, you know, this alcohol? And he'd go, oh, you leave me alone, Millie, um, because so-and-so is going to come over. I'm not going to drink, but I'm going to give them a drink. So, you know, it just stayed around for a while, but my dad remembers the day when uh, Grandpa called his three young sons, my dad was the oldest of three boys, into the kitchen, and when they walked into the kitchen, uh, lined up on their counter right next to their sink was all the bottles of alcohol. And, and one by one, Grandpa took the tops off, uh, one in each hand, and dumped them you know, down the sink. And that was the last time my dad ever saw alcohol in his home. And that was just like a representation of the dramatic, dramatic change that took place in my Grandpa's life. I had the privilege of, uh, my grandpa passed away a little bit more than 10 years ago, and I had the privilege of speaking at my grandfather's funeral. Um, And at that time, I read and then spoke from Psalm chapter 1. Because in my life, this was the story of my grandfather. And his story to me, and this is why I paused at verse 3, Because it says, and he will be like a tree. That was my grandpa. Planted by the rivers of water. My grandpa was kind of a tough, I I can remember as a kid, my grandpa was probably, you know, mid-60s, lived in Arizona, kind of tans, very fit and active. I remember he used to say, you know, come on, Gary, punch me. You know, and so he'd let me, you know, he'd kind of tense up a little bit, let me punch him. In the, in the stomach, and he just wouldn't move. And I thought, this was the toughest guy I'd ever met. That's my grandpa. And, and I also remember, I mean, over and over and over again, grandpa's kind of a quiet guy, uh, full of character, um, watching my grandpa in his chair with his Bible open. I mean, I'm not talking about once a day. I'm talking about many times during the day. He was either out doing something, busy, working on something, or... He was in uh, his chair, and he's just reading, his, reading the scriptures. I've, I've watched my uncle share his, uh, my, my grandpa share his faith so many times in powerful ways. But this was his story. Here's a man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, 
His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. And that kind of a man is like a tree, right? Planted. That was my grandpa. My dad came to faith um, at 15 years old, a few years after my grandpa and grandma came to faith. And, um, and God began, you know, working uh, in his life and leading him towards ministry. Um, my, so I grew up in a pastor's home, a uh, pastor's family. In fact, uh, my story, my salvation story, is connected with two things specifically. Uh, one is, similar to what I just talked about, these godly men, these godly influences in our life, was the testimony of godly, consistent parents. I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, and then the second, this kind of uh, thing that really formed my early years, uh, these parents that were consistent. My dad was a pastor, um, and yet uh, I saw my dad. He was the same at our house as he was at church. Very consistent. I never had any questions about who he's going to be, what he's going to be like. So this was my dad. My mom was the same way. And so I had this testimony of consistency of, of uh, the work of God in their lives. And I also had the privilege of growing up in churches that were alive and vibrant. And I've told a lot of people this over the years. Those two things, um, right from the beginning of my life, told me something that's really important. Um, it told me that God was real and that he was alive and he was working. And I knew that because I saw it. <laughs> I saw it in the life of my parents, but I saw it in the life of our church. I saw people, you know, coming to faith and their lives changed. Um, I saw them being discipled and growing in their faith. And so, I, I mean, as a young guy, I, just, I didn't have any question about the reality that God was real because I saw him working. Um, if I can tell you anything, we're going to come back to this a little bit later, but, uh, you know, your responsibility as godly men is critical in the lives of your children and the lives of the children of this ministry. And I would say almost uh, equal to that significance is uh, the investment that you make in a church where you can see God working and that he's alive because your, your children and the children of this place, that, that's what they know. That's what they see. Is God real? Well, they know because they're going to see it in lives being changed. And that's my story. Um, so as a very young boy, five years old, in a, in a Sunday school class with a faithful Sunday school teacher, I knew the gospel. I, I, heard, um, I heard it again on a Sunday morning, and I knew that God was real, and I knew as, as clearly as I could know anything that God had placed um, his word in my heart and that I needed to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit and his prompting in my life to, by faith, accept Christ's forgiveness for my sins. And I did. Um, very young, five years old, but it was real. Um, and it was real because I knew. I just knew these things because of this, this whole background of, of, what, uh, of what God had done in my life. And so um, I'm thankful you know, for that testimony and that work of God in, you know, in both of these kinds of ways. Um, Psalm, 5, or Psalm 1 describes this picture of these kind of men. These kind of godly men that would have this kind of influence. My uh, story on my mom's side, um, actually, uh, on my mom's side, I'm a fourth 
generation pastor. My great-grandfather, so my mom's grandfather, uh, came from the, the uh, country of Denmark as a missionary to America. In fact, as a missionary to the wilds of Minnesota in the late 1800s. Um, and so my great-grandfather came as a missionary and planted Danish-speaking Baptist churches up in northern Minnesota. Uh, my grandfather, on my mom's side, was a church planter, uh, started 27 churches in his lifetime, sort of that upper Midwest, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, those kind of states up there. Um, and so, uh, so on my mom's side, we have this, this legacy of ministry. And from the time that I was very young, I, n- I never wanted to do anything but be a pastor. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody else say it in exactly that way, but that's the truth. Uh, I never wanted to be a fireman. <laughs> um, I never wanted to be a cowboy um, or uh, electrician or a doctor or anything else. I just, I just wanted to be a pastor like my dad. And uh, God used, I believe, that childhood desire um, to grow in my heart in the years that, uh, that I grew up, this burden, this passion uh, for ministry. And then allowed that to really give me this love for the church um, that has driven me and impacted me and, uh, you know, really affected every decision um, that I've made as a man, as a, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, um, this uh, burden for the church. When I was in my 20s, um, I got challenged to, uh, to one thing, and I've, I've probably said this to different groups, I mean, I can't even count how many times, and I've said this in my own life many, many times. But I was challenged, and I made this commitment that I was going to give the best years of my life to the two things that mattered most, my family and God's family. And uh, by God's grace, I've committed to doing that. over a few years, when I was in my 20s, I thought the best years of my life were like the next 10 years. So I've changed my mind on that. All right? I mean, it was pretty good. Um, each stage that I get to, I think the best years of my life are the ones coming up. So I've changed it a little bit in that uh, my dream is that I would, I would live my life, you know, the whole thing, all of the seasons of life, giving it to the two things that matter most, uh, my family and God's family. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm thankful for those, those kind of challenges of, uh, you know, directing me and guiding me, uh, putting me in a, in a very specific direction. So I want to look at uh, Psalm 15, if you want to go there. And I want to talk a little bit about this chapter, this psalm, in my life and uh, give you a little bit of challenge. Um, what time were you usually done in here, Pastor Jay? 10.20? Okay. A little bit of a challenge in this area about uh, what Psalm 15 has to say. So, Psalmist says, Lord, who shall abide in my tabernacle, and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. 
He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. And he that putteth not out of his, uh, putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Psalm 15 um, describes for us this picture of the man, just lost my notes, hang on, of a man that would um, dwell, abide in God's tabernacle. So David, I think, is a story of David, and he's saying, who are the men that are able to have this type of intimate communion with God? What do those kind of men look like? In fact, uh, the grammatical construction of the text tells us that it kind of puts this emphasis on the first two phrases. So you sort of, if you can kind of track the, the psalm like this, the two phrases of verse 1, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? They're like a title. All right, so this is the title. This is going to be the theme. Uh, David's going to say, let's answer this question. Who are the kind of people, who are the kind of men that are going to have this intimate, personal relationship with God? And then the rest of the verses describe for us, um, explain what the marks of a godly man are. And there's a bunch of them. I've summarized it in, I'm going to give you four quick things on this. But this is the picture of the kind of man that can have an intimate, real relationship with with God. And he says these four things. Um, the marks of a godly man, number one, you see it in his character. And uh, I'm going to say it this way he speaks the truth. So verse two says, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. All right, so this is not talking about uh, your words necessarily. This is talking about your heart. And I think what the verse is telling us is that that character and integrity uh, don't have so much to do with what you say. They really have to do with what you are with your heart. Uh, You probably know, like I do, you know some guys that talk a a good game. They talk a great game. Um, If you just listen to them, You'll, uh, you know, you're impressed with them, but when you watch their life or watch them live out, then, you know, you don't see the, the same kind of character and integrity uh, living out. I've always felt like this, and uh, my dad, I think, is an example of this. He has been in my life. Um, I've always enjoyed men that the, the more you know them, um, the more respect you have for them. There's a lot of guys that are the opposite, right? <laughs> I mean, the first time you meet them, you're like, wow, that guy's pretty impressive. And then, you know, every time you interact with them, your respect for them diminishes. But I can think about some guys in my life where it is the opposite. Um, they don't necessarily blow you away the first time that you see them, but every time you watch them interact in situation after situation, good and bad, your respect grows for them because, I mean, right, this is character. This is what integrity is. And uh, so, so David says, you know, kind of this mark of a godly man is this idea. Um, he speaks the truth. And, and it's not just the idea that what he says is true, but it's the idea that what he says 
is consistent with how he lives. He's a person that's marked by integrity. Uh, one of the greatest gifts that you have, men, in your relationships, for sure with your family, but in your relationships uh, at work, in your community, one of the greatest gifts that you have is the gift of your integrity. And um, when you lose it, it is really, really hard to get it back. So um, David says, you know, I, I want to be the kind of guy that, you know, is able to dwell in God's house. And if that's going to be the case, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need to be marked by this idea of this character that speaks the truth. That's verse 2. Uh, secondly, you see it in his conduct. Look at um, verse 3 and then a little part of verse 6. He that uh, backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Um, oh, excuse me, the first part of verse 5. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. So um, all of these phrases are talking about uh, the conduct of a man that is respected um, in his community, respected by the people around him. And I said it this way, so you see it in his conduct, he earns others' trust. It doesn't take very long for people to find out if they trust you, um, especially your family. Whether, um, whether you can hold confidences, uh, dads, maybe I'm talking to you, whether you can keep promises, whether you're going to be there in the hard times for them, whether you're going to be there at all, right? So all of these kinds of things are trust-building uh, type of activities. And everybody around you is looking for this from you. Um, I know this, these things are true of ladies as well, but I think there's a special sense in these kind of areas where guys lead the way in this. In your families, in your church, people want to know if they can trust you. Um, your kids, fathers, your kids, one of the biggest questions, I mean, they're not thinking about this. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, they're writing down this list. But they, they know this. And they want to know, you know, can I trust you? Um, you know, your employees at your work or, or the people that work under you or, you know, what, whatever the relationships that you have in your life, um, this trust is such a vital component of uh, of valid relationships, and it impacts who we are. It impacts the kind of the kind of men that we are. So I think David's talking about this. You see it in his character. He speaks the truth. You see it in his conduct. He earns others' trust. Um, number three. Let me just mention this. You see it in his relationships. And I just said it this way. He guards his company. The end of verse four says. Um, he, uh, in who, excuse me, the end, of, um, the end of verse 3, he that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. So he's careful about his relationships. He guards his relationships. And then the fourth thing is that you see it in his promises. And I, I, I want to get to this quickly because I want to spend a couple minutes on this. 
You see it in his promises, and that is that he keeps his word. And we see it all throughout this chapter. Um, verse 3 talks about keeping his word. Um, verse, the end of verse 4 says, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changes not. Man, you ought to mark that down some way um, in your Bibles or in some place where you remember this whole idea. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Um, in fact, I, I would say this phrase in these words uh, in this way. He keeps his word even when it hurts. So, um, you know, guys, we, we live in a hope-so world. Most kids, most families grow up in a, in a hope-so world. They hope that their family will stick together. They hope that uh, dad's going to provide for them. They hope that dad's not going to come home drunk again tonight. They hope that he's going to play ball with them. They hope that he's going to spend time with them like he said that he would. They hope that he loves them. I mean, uh, it's, this is you know rampant across our culture. Families, children, wives uh, are growing up in this whole in this whole hope so world. And you know, your children are going to figure out the uncertainty of our world soon enough. And make sure that your home is a place where there's a, a sort of a haven of security. Um, they're not having to hope so about dad that he's going to stay faithful to his word. Make sure that your home is a place where everything's going to be okay because dad said it would be okay. Dad said it would be okay. And so when we, when we go through these difficult times, everything's going to be okay because Dad said it would be okay and Dad always keeps his promises. I don't know if you can give a gift to your kids, to your wife, that's any greater than this. Dad, my husband, always keeps his promises even if it hurts. Even if it means he sacrifices. Even if it means, you know, whatever. Dad is going to keep his promises. Because this gives this baseline of security in the life of a family that allows them to handle the insecurity that's all around us in a way with strength and stability. Man, we live in a world that's so messed up. And they're facing so many things. You get outside of the picture of your home, they got so many things going on. you got to make sure that in your home, there is this place that's secure and stable. And there's, I know there's more going on there than just this, but at the bedrock of this idea of this foundational home is this idea that I can trust what's going on out, out there because Dad said it was going to be okay, and Dad always keeps his promises. I've known that all along, that I can trust that. I can trust his word. Um, there aren't a lot of men like this out there anymore. Have you notice that? There's a lot of men climbing the success ladder. There's a lot of men uh, grabbing for all the gusto. 
but there's not that many that are committed to keeping their promises. Not that many men that are committed to keeping their promises to never abandon their families. And I'm not talking about just physically. There's too many men have cashed out on their family. And and I'm talking about Christian men, too. They maybe haven't left physically, but in, in many ways, they've cashed out. They've cashed out emotionally. They've cashed out spiritually. There's too many men who have not kept their promises to lead their family. I mean, uh, men that are husbands and fathers, um, you made that promise when you got married. Well, I don't know exactly what your vow said, but I've done enough weddings to know that's usually a part of it. We promise. We promise this, you know, lovely young lady standing there beside us that I promise, I commit, I vow that I will lead you in our marriage. And listen, guys, you made that promise. Um, Too many men, you know, that end up, uh, hey, listen, we're going to go through some times in life, guys, where, you know, marriage is hard, family situations are difficult. Um, and uh, the reality is that, and I believe me, I understand. I'm not, I'm not acting up here like, you know, I don't get how hard some things can be. I, I've talked with enough people. You know, I've been through some stuff. I know how hard life can be, how complicated and how complex it can be. And I'm telling you that the kind of men that God says can stand in his holy hill kind of men that he wants to be in his place, in his tabernacle. What David just says are the kind of men that will keep their promises even when it hurts. So when life gets tough and, uh, you know, your, your wife has a bad week or a bad month or a bad year, I don't know, or a few years, um, you know, these kind of men keep their promises, right? They stay. They stay. And, uh, and they don't just stay physically. They stay emotionally. They stay spiritually. They maintain their promise that said, I will lead you till death do us part. Um. You know, I've, I've got uh, this, you know, kind of one time here standing in front of you this morning. I don't know. God leads. Maybe we'll have some more times in our future. I, uh, that's up to God, really. But uh, if it's just this one shot, um, can I tell you guys this? Keep your promises. Keep your promises. If Harvest Baptist Church and Harvest Ministries would be filled with men who just, who just did this thing, who did this thing, they said, we will, by God's grace, I am going to keep my promises. And I'm going to come alongside some other men because guess what? You're not going to be the only one that has some difficult times in your marriage, in your family, in some other situations. But I'm going to come along some other men in this church and we're going to link arms in those difficult days. We're going to commit together that we are going to keep our promises. 
by God's grace, no matter what's happening, no matter what's going on, we're going to stay. God says, these are the kind of people, these are the kind of people that are going to dwell, the kind of men that are going to dwell in my holy hill. Lewis Smead says, when a man makes a promise, he creates an island of certainty in a heaving ocean of uncertainty. When you, when you make a promise, you have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. This is pretty powerful. Guys, you, you hold a pretty big key in your hands in the, in the well-being, emotional, physical, spiritual future of your wife and of your children in this idea whether you'll be someone who will keep their promises. So um, my story is wrapped up in these two main ideas, right? Godly men and God's church, vibrant churches. And when you put these two things together, boy, look out. Um, It's the best thing that you can ever imagine. In fact, I meant to say this earlier. I look back on my notes here. Um, See if I can find this. Oh, here it is. Listen to this. I was talking a little bit about church earlier. I want you to hear this. Um, So here's the thing about church in my experience. I love the church, but when a church is vibrant and alive, there is nothing better. And when it's not, there's almost nothing worse. So, um, men, you you know, your role, primarily in your families, and then living that out with with stable families that are invested, I mean, they are all in, in the ministry of the church. This has the ability to create a place where there's nothing better. There's nothing better when God's people are unified and heading forward and bashing down, you know, the gates of hell is what... uh, there's nothing better than that. Um, but when, when men you know, get off track, when they start losing their perspective and the church you know, falls in line with that, man, there's nothing worse than that. So you've got a big job here. You've got a big, a big role. So you know, my commitment for my life, really the, the big picture of my burden is that, uh, that I've given my life to God's church, and I believe that the best way that I can help God's church to be strong and vibrant and alive is to invest my life in the discipleship and mentorship and mutual accountability of relationships with men that God places in the church. So if you want to know about uh, Gary Walton, that's it. You want to know about the foundation of ministry and burdens. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff there. I got a few things, you know, rolling around in this little brain. Um, They kind of bash against each other because there's not a lot of room up there. But there's a few things going on up there. But at the heart of this is this idea. I love the church, and I really believe that you guys are the heart of what, what God wants to do here. So if this church is going to be effective, it's, I mean, it's all here. It's in this room. Um, and so the role of pastors and leaders is, is twofold. It's investing in each other and, uh, and, 
Uh, you know, my story has been that. Um, discipleship, investment in, in men, leaders. Um, and then in this picture of this mutual accountability of men where we're saying, I, I'm going to be there beside you. Let's press on. Let's press forward. You're going to have to help me in the days that I stumble because I'm going to. And I'm going to be there to help you in the days that you stumble. And we're going to be honest and transparent about what God's doing in our life. We're going to press forward towards God and, and give ourselves um, to this thing that God loves that he's called his church. So I'm committed to those things. And I would tell you guys that if you care about the next generation, maybe you don't, maybe you just care about you, know, you and your generation, but if you care about the next generation, then I'd tell you to give yourself to be part of a church where God is working, that's vibrant and alive, and people are giving their life to Christ and lives are being changed because the next generation will then know that God is real. And in this place, then we'll grow together. That's my prayer.